Hello and welcome to Coffee Lovers Radio. I am your weekly host, Joseph Robertson with Coffee Lovers Magazine. This week, we have our interview with Dave Asprey of Bulletproof Coffee. He's featured in the latest issue of Coffee Lovers Magazine, and we're sharing our chat with Dave here. Before we dive into that, uh, just a reminder that we have a contest going on right now. You can win a signed copy of The Art and Craft of Coffee by Kevin Sinnott. Just visit coffeeloversmag.com slash contest and uh, join the giveaway. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback. Feel free to email us at the show at coffeeloversradio.com. You can find all links for Coffee Lovers Radio at coffeeloversradio.com. Please rate and review the show on iTunes. And now, here's our chat with Dave Asprey. Dave Asprey is the owner of Bulletproof Executive and creator of Bulletproof Coffee, along with the Bulletproof Diet. Over the past few years, he has gone from making a website to show his friends how he lost over 100 pounds and turned his mind and body bulletproof, to creating a way of life around a particular style of coffee, which is used by executives, athletes, entrepreneurs, and coffee lovers around the world, and even was featured on a recent episode of Hawaii Five-O. At its core, Bulletproof Coffee combines coffee made from beans that are mold and toxin-free, along with grass-fed butter and medium-chain triglycerides that are usually derived from coconut oil. This is a drink which is designed to put your brain into overdrive and help you perform at your maximum level. But it is more than just a drink. Today, I sit down with Dave and discover what led him to this unique brew and a little bit of what has made him the man he is today. I grew up in one of those households that bought canned coffee, uh, not the ready-to-drink canned coffee, but the very low quality uh, from big box retailer, <laughs> pre-ground, <laughs> uh, not so delicious, robust bean variety. Mm-hmm. And I remember is that first, something your is that something your mother drank? Um, no, my mother was more a Coke drinker, but my dad drank that stuff. Oh, okay. And you know he would go with a slightly higher end canned brand, and I'm not going to throw any one brand under the bus, um, but uh, it was not <laughs> that good. But he was amazed at the difference, and I always thought coffee was disgusting as a teenager. I remember the first time I had coffee; it was instant coffee, and it was to try and read Great Expectations. This was the first book I couldn't finish because it would just put me to sleep every time I'd read it. Because only Charles Dickens could write about dirt in four pages of description about dirt, and he hasn't even got to the blade of grass yet. The most boring book I've ever read in my life. And I'm just kind of a fast reader. I've read 10,000 plus books at least. Mm -hmm. Um, Don't quote me on that number. I haven't done the math, but (laughs) I used to read like 10 books a day when I was five because (laughs) that's just how Mm -hmm. I was. And when I, uh, uh, when I drank that, I remember just thinking, I never want to have coffee again. This is horrible. And it was when I went off to college, I discovered espresso and this is in like 1990. And the only A I ever got in calculus was when they made me take an 8 a.m. class, which is the mm-hmm. middle of the night when you're in college. Right. And I drank a triple espresso or actually a triple latte uh, every morning. And I got an A in calculus. I was like, oh, my God, my brain's on fire. I love how I feel. Uh-huh. And when I came home that summer, I brought like real beans and I had my own little you know, $9 grinder. And I made coffee for my dad who made fun of me. He's like, He's like, what? Grinding coffee, you know, you you coffee snob, foo-foo people. And after three days of drinking my coffee, he's like, you know, 
this stuff is actually pretty good. And after another week, he threw away his can of pre-made Robusta ground stuff. And was like, I can't drink this stuff anymore. Like you've, you've converted me. And to this day, uh, 20 something years later, he still drinks good quality coffee. Well, he drinks bulletproof coffee now, obviously, but (laughs) um, he's always been a bean lover. What happened to me is, uh, okay, I still weighed 300 pounds and I was drinking this stuff. And I, I started drinking more and more of it, as many coffee lovers know. Like it's sort of a slippery slope and you drink it, you, f- you don't feel good for as long, so then you need more. And then you don't feel good for as long, you need more. So you kind of get on this, you know, first it's one cup, then two cups, then three cups, then four cups. And then you go on a caffeine washout where you don't have any coffee for a week and you feel like you're going to die. And then you do it again. And eventually I noticed that I was getting more of a hangover from coffee than a benefit. And I gave up coffee for about five years where I would maybe drink it once every two months, but I would always get a headache and sometimes sore joints and just this jitter cranky feeling like, like angry kind of feeling from it. When, when was it that you gave up the coffee? That was right around, um, 2000. Let's see. It would have been around 99 to 2000, somewhere in there. Um, it might've only been four years. It's hard to know. I mean, we're going back a long time, but I, I went substantially down on it probably around 2000 to 2004, right around in there. Even when I went off to Tibet, I was off of coffee because uh, I mean, I'd become a a raw vegan to see what that would do to help me lose weight. And I I could tell that coffee was, was usually making me feel crappy. And when I went to Tibet, I spent almost three months in Southeast Asia and in Nepal and Tibet. I learned meditation from monks and traveled around and, and generally took some time where I wasn't plugged into technology, which was rejuvenating. And I, I came back to the States and after I had this experience on Mount Kailash at 18,300 feet, it's the highest pass there. I've done high altitude mountaineering in South America. And when you're that high, you feel like you're going to die. You really don't feel good. But I had yak (laughs) butter tea. Dave's experience on Mount Kailash is a fascinating story. I asked him to take us there and help us understand just what led him to his moment of epiphany. It's kind of funny. I don't think I've ever talked about this. I was with uh, a traveling companions. There's a group of people. You sort of get thrown together when you're taking a four-wheel drive for five days across remote parts of Tibet to go to this mountain that's in the middle of nowhere on the off-season. So there's only 10 Westerners on this whole giant mountain that can support like 50 or 60,000 people during the height of tourist season. It's 10 degrees below zero in the morning. Like the camelback I'm drinking out of for water, it's freezing. So like the hose you drink through, you can't drink because it's so cold. So so pretty brutal conditions. And uh, one of the traveling companions I was with was not prepared for high altitude or for cold or frankly for a trek of that thing. So I was working to to help take care of them. And it was, uh, it was just an interesting, an interesting time. And I was not feeling so good myself. And I walked into this little mud adobe hut that's on the trail. And, and it's hard to explain how remote this is. You're on top of the world. The sky's a different color. Uh, the air is really cold and really clean and you don't even see blades of grass for the most part. It's just lichen and mm. you can be on top of a pass and looking around the 360 degree view and you still don't see any grass or trees. It, it's, it's a different world. And 
it feels remote and barren, and yet you find these these little people. The Tibetans are generally like five feet tall, <laughs> and they're all stronger than I am. <laughs> I, like these are some of the most superhuman people on earth. I, I watched guys. In fact, wow. the guy on the trail with me was wearing blue jeans, counterfeit Nikes, and a thin leather jacket, and it's ten degrees below zero. He falls into a river. He's showing off for one of the girls. He falls into a river up to his waist. Okay. <laughs> I, I look at the guy. I'm like, okay, this is hypothermia. I, I'm trained in this stuff. He's going to die. Okay. This is what I've learned from all of the avalanche stuff, uh, all of that kind of training. So I have an extra parka, down parka, and I hand it to him. Like, put this on. There's a language barrier. So he looks at me, smiles, and puts it in his backpack because he thinks I want him to carry it for me. And he's unconcerned. <laughs> like, this guy is made out of titanium. I, I don't even know how incredibly bulletproof he was. And he, he just dried off and was totally okay. And I just realized there's something magic here. And when I went, in, I, I went into that little hut and I drank this yak butter tea and it turned my body back on. And I just remember that feeling so precisely. I said, I want to do this when I come back to the States. And it was that feeling that just stuck in my mind that had me come back and start mixing not just butter. I, I probably had a thousand iterations. I tried coconut oil. I tried coconut milk. I tried nut milk. I tried whole nuts. I, I was a raw vegan, a pretty accomplished raw vegan cook, actually, or whatever, mm -hmm. anti-cook. And uh, I tried all the different ways I knew of to put stuff in coffee that would taste good and to put stuff in tea. Tea doesn't taste very good. And I'd already looked at the mold toxicity in coffee um, Going back actually almost 10 years, I'd been aware of the problem. The subject of mold and toxins in coffee is either non-existent or controversial, depending on how versed you are in the field of specialty coffee. I asked Dave to clarify how he started looking down that path. I'd been looking at the mold in coffee as a potential variable because I'd, I'd noticed that, you know, I, I don't feel that great sometimes on coffee. And when I came back, I got really serious about it because I, I love coffee. And I, I came back from Tibet and said, you know, I'm going to have a cup of coffee. And I went to a, uh, a coffee place in Mountain View, California, uh, that tended to have single estate beans. And I ordered, you know, the, the fanciest coffee I could based on the, the reading that I'd already done. And I was like, oh, I'll, I'll go for the Central American. And, and I've written about these steps on the Bulletproof blog. I've written the steps in the Bulletproof Diet book that's just that just hit the New York Times bestseller list. So like this is readily available information. It was the second post I think I ever mm -hmm. wrote was like, how do you go to your local coffee shop? Like look for the most tattoos, <laughs> uh, ask, <laughs> ask the guy with the biggest beard or the woman with like the coolest hair, <laughs> like, <Right. laughs> single estate, Central American, because you can statistically reduce your, the moldiness level in your coffee. And what I uncovered over time uh, for really digging in on this was that different cups of coffee had a profound influence on how my brain worked and how I felt and whether or not I got angry from coffee. And I, at this point, I'll state it categorically, like coffee that's of lower quality or sometimes even high quality coffee, but high quality coffee containing mold toxins from the fermentation or from the growing and harvesting process, um, it makes you angry and it makes you slower. In fact, I even published research in the Bulletproof Diet book looking at six of seven measures of cognitive function. And it turns out that my lab-tested coffee beans make you perform better on these executive function tests. So I, at this point, most of the world has put regulations in place for one mold toxin in coffee, but we don't have them in Canada or the U.S. And mm -hmm. 
there's 34 studies on the Bulletproof site looking at the toxicity of one of the things that is a known problem in coffee and it's a known um, kidney and bladder cancer causing agent in people. Mm-hmm. I'm like, look, maybe if there's just as near to zero as is humanly possible in the coffee, maybe the coffee will taste really good and maybe you'll feel better when you drink it and you won't have to pee as much. And all of those are true. <laughs> Before diving into the development of the Bulletproof Executive and Bulletproof Coffee, I wanted to have a better understanding of how Dave grew up and what influenced him along the way to bring him to create the Bulletproof brand and where he is now. I grew up in a a family of of engineers. Uh, All of my aunts and uncles on my dad's side of the family are like master's degree engineers. My grandmother was a nuclear engineer. My grandfather was a PhD chemist. They met on the Manhattan Project. So I I was going to be an aerospace engineer or maybe uh, maybe electrical engineering or computer science. In fact, I studied computer science for four years and have a degree in information systems with a subset uh, uh, or a a subconcentration in a form of artificial intelligence called decision support systems. So I, I, I studied that stuff. And I remember at the end of my first year of college at UC Santa Barbara, I, I called my parents. I'm like, I don't think I really like this engineering stuff. And I just didn't feel like they were teaching me to solve real world problems. I felt like it was so just academic and floaty. Uh, and I wanted to go out and do something. And I said, I think I want to study marketing. And, and the advice I got from my parents was, if you want to like, why would you study marketing? That's not a real subject. You should, uh, you should go out and just market if you want to market. And so I said, ah, screw marketing. I'll I'll get my degree. And it turns out I I spent a great portion of my, of my career doing something that I I really do love, which is, um, internet architecture. I, I ran the web and internet engineering program for the university of California for five years, uh, and I, I was a teacher and I, I love the kind of thinking that goes into engineering, but I'm not a, an equations a, or a coder kind of guy anymore. I, I used to do that stuff. Uh, what I do is I figure out how it's supposed to work for optimum efficiency and I apply that to myself. And then the hardest thing I ever did was that five years of teaching because that's what made me able to do bulletproof the way I do it now. Taking something as hard as the internet, like every step from your keyboard to what happens you know, at the very end of Google and all the way back and trying to explain that to an engineer over the course of 12 weeks meant taking an incredible amount of complexity and boiling it down so people could draw a picture in their head of how it works well enough to navigate the system. And that's kind of how hackers work. And it was that practice from five years of teaching and all of this other work in um, high-tech strategy, taking these, these very esoteric weird ideas from the internet and making it so people who didn't have a background in tech could understand it well enough to make business decisions. That's what I've done for almost my whole career. So taking this anti-aging stuff that I know because I've spent 10 years running an anti-aging group uh, because I had to learn all this stuff to lose 100 pounds of my own, it was taking that. So the, the turning point came in, let's see, when I started losing this weight, when I lost at least 50 of the of the hundred pounds I had to lose, I put uh-huh. up a website and somewhere around 97 to 99, um, that was my first attempt at helping people understand this stuff. So I, I'd put some information up because all my friends at work were like, Dave, you had to buy new pants and you eat weirdly, but it's working <laughs> for you and we can see it. How do we do it? So I, I just would sort of help this circle of friends. 
and put some stuff down on a website, but I, I was too inexperienced and, um, and just too busy with what I was doing and the very foundations of cloud computing the way we know it today. Like I, I was there <laughs> when we were making the cloud. It was one of the most amazing times in, in my life. Mm-hmm. And that sort of just sat there and didn't do much. It was about somewhere around 2011, maybe 2010, where I said, you know, I've spent 300 at the time, a quarter million dollars upgrading myself uh, over these last 10 years. I've lost 100 pounds and now my brain works better than I ever have. Like I have more energy now than I have in my entire life. Uh, If someone had told me this when I was 20 or 25, the amount of effort and suffering and stress that I have gone through, just the amount of willpower I've burned to become who and where I am now, it was unnecessary. And it was because I didn't have the manual. And I thought, I'll just share this and maybe 20 people, it'll just change their life. And if they're the only people who read it, that was a huge, huge return on the investment. Because if just one person didn't have to go through what I've gone through to lose 100 pounds and keep it off, uh, it would be a win. So it was that idea that launched Bulletproof. And I had no idea how many people would want to come to the website. I had no plan to start making any products. And the first product was the coffee beans. And I made the coffee beans because mm-hmm. I wanted to stop throwing away $20 bags of coffee that tasted good but had mold in them. And I know when they have mold because they make me feel angry and cranky and jittery and and things like that. I, I don't like a headache and feeling like I want to kill people after I have coffee. And it happens quite a lot. The the first uh, coffee that you created, were you, were you going to Origin from the beginning to work on the process or was that something that you did uh, this side? Um, what I did was... I went to a variety of coffee. I mean, when you're new to coffee, you don't know what you're doing. So I went to a variety uh-huh. of places where I, I could go to the origin. And I, I looked at hundreds and hundreds of, of, of different possibilities. And I used lab testing uh, to, based on the standards that I'd worked on. And said, all right, based on these, let, let's talk about what happens at origin. And I, I identified the best practices for what would create not the best tasting coffee in the world, because we already kind of know how to do that, but coffee that was the lowest toxin, highest performance coffee that also tasted good. Like it's just a different end goal. And mm-hmm. I was able to find uh, an origin location in Guatemala that was doing most of what I wanted and to work on work with them on tweaking the rest. And um, having the ability to as a technologist to look at the system of coffee instead of just just the outputs you know just oh, did it taste good did it not taste good you know, what was the the what the appearance of the coffee but to be able to actually quantify it using the appropriate technologies to say here's my specified process and you have to follow the process well enough to have this outcome it it's the same thing we do when we're making brand new cars we we know when the statistical process control systems aren't working. So we just apply that to coffee with a different goal than has ever been known. There's only two goals in coffee. There's cost, make it cheap, mm. and there's deliciousness, make it good. Like and then maybe mm-hmm. you could say there's a fair trade thing. And I'm a supporter of that. And you know, there's organic certification and biodynamic and things like that, all of which I uh, I'm a supporter of. But what uh, what comes down to what actually goes in your cup and then what does it do for you it hadn't been done. And, and that was the mechanism or that that was the thing I was thinking about. 
the the process that you all that you go through now is it is it something that you're you're constantly working on? It is something I'm constantly working on because the biggest impact on this is potentially our soil. So our agricultural practices control the soil and the fungal biome of the soil. This is the mix of uh, fungi and bacteria and other microorganisms that live in soil. They affect the coffee plant. For instance, let's look at coffee rust, which is really causing trouble in Central America. And coffee rust doesn't make mold toxins. It is a mold, but it doesn't make toxins that that are poisonous to people. It just kills the plants, which is a really bad thing. Mm. It turns out if you are doing shade-grown coffee, it allows another kind of fungus called the, the angel fungus, uh, if memory serves. It might be white angel, but anyhow, you'll have to excuse me for not remembering its, its street name. Sure. And this fungus stops rust. So shade-grown coffee has less of a problem with rust than sun-grown coffee, yet most coffee is grown in a way to maximize yields, not in a way to be most uh, part of the system of the soil and the forest and you know the songbirds around it. So what what we're looking to do is to get the highest quality coffee, the best yields, but to not damage the soil because when you damage the soil, it it helps to introduce toxins to the plants. When the mm -hmm. plants are stressed, the plants get more toxins and there's various vectors through which the to the toxin forming mold spores become inoculated into the plants and then when you do the ferment, there's a whole another set of practices there. And the practices are all optimized <laughs> around flavor. I'm like, <laughs> flavor matters. Right. It's just not the most important thing. The best tasting coffee that makes you feel crappy is not a win. And I, I've had cup of excellence coffee that's, that has toxins in it. It, it just mm -hmm. it happens because it's not a variable that's tracked. I, I think you've mentioned before on the podcast that um, probably most naturally processed coffees, naturally processed being where the, the cherry is dried on the seed uh, and then removed versus being washed. Uh, so most naturally processed coffees probably are are more likely to have uh, these toxic molds that, that you're looking at. Is that correct? Uh, very, very well established in literature, yeah. Um, and and I just, I, I, I love a good natural processed coffee. Oh. So do I. <laughs> the stuff tastes amazing. Yeah. I mean, it it absolutely. Mm -hmm. Here's a test for you. Next time you're going to do this, anyone listening can do this. And in fact, I wrote about this in the Bulletproof Diet book um, that just hit the, the New York Times list. So so the mechanism is is more spelled out in there. But if you drink a nice big cup of of natural coffee, look how quickly and how urgently you have to pee. <laughs> and then when you have to mm -hmm. pee, look at how much actual pee there was compared to how much you actually needed to pee. And what you'll find is that when you drink a natural coffee, you have to urgently go to the bathroom. And when you go, your pee is diluted. But in other words, it's a light color and you didn't have that much of it. And here's what happened. The main toxin that's triggering this is called okra toxin A, which is documented to be way higher in natural processed coffee. So this is toxic to your bladder and kidneys. The body senses this and generally it triggers a bit of a fight or flight response, which you can feel in various ways if, if you're if you're very self-aware or you've done meditation or something like that, uh, I can use technology to do that actually on myself. And then your body says, oh my God, this stuff is toxic to the kidneys and bladder. I must dilute it. So then it pulls liquid from the plasma in your blood. So it dehydrates you in order to dilute this pollutant. And then it tells you, you have to be really bad right now. And then you go. And 
seriously, Joseph, tomorrow, if you drink a big cup of natural and you watch this versus another day drinking a cup of, of say, bulletproof coffee beans, which are lab tested, you'll be like, oh my goodness, maybe coffee isn't the diuretic I thought it was. Because it turns out caffeine mm-hmm. isn't much of a diuretic. It's a very weak diuretic, but mold toxins, ones that are toxic to your bladder and kidney are a very strong diuretic. So this is just a little personal test that someone like you, who's probably not that sensitive to the, uh, to some of the other effects of these toxins, you don't feel them. They're still cancer causing, they still cause DNA damage, but you're not one of the 28% of people with genes that make you more sensitive to mold toxins. So I I have Mm -hmm. genes that make me a canary for mold. I feel this stuff before you do, but the studies about what they do for cancer and for other systemic degenerative conditions, uh, those are well established. I, I have 1,200 studies on the Bulletproof mm. site about just this one toxin in coffee, and I test for 25 of them in my beans. Coming very soon is the first Bulletproof Cafe. It is opening in Santa Monica, California, and will feature Bulletproof Coffee, along with other Bulletproof offerings. I asked Dave to share a bit about the new cafe. The cafe is opening end of March, beginning of April, depending on all the final permits coming through. It's in Santa Monica, California, underneath uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's office, which is kind of funny. A couple blocks from Gold's Gym, a couple blocks from the Google headquarters down there, in a, a really cool part of town on Main Street. And... This is a coffee shop that's, you can sort of tell it's a coffee shop when you look at it from the outside, but when you walk in, the first thing that, that hits you is that this isn't your mother's coffee shop. It, it's not about, <laughs> you know, the, the rustic look with, with stamped hand-filled bags. And we tend to, as coffee people, and, and I am a coffee person, I, I love coffee, I love coffee culture, uh, I have deep respect for the art of roasting coffee. I have also figured out that what goes into the roast, <laughs> in, into the roaster, has a pretty darn big impact on what comes out. And the whole art of roasting is taking what comes in, roasting it in the right way so that what comes out tastes really good. And you modify the roast mm-hmm. based on the beans. Mm-hmm. Um, what I've found is that because you can see and smell the roast and because, honestly, of Starbucks, you know, they roasted in house at the very beginning in Pike's place, you know, you're in Seattle. Most of my team is in Seattle as well. Uh, my company headquarters is in Bellevue. So when I, when I look at, at that culture part of it, we all identify roasting as like the magic of coffee and it is the magic of coffee, but there's more magic that goes behind it. So you're not, you're going to walk into the Bulletproof coffee shop and you're going to feel like, okay, this wasn't about roasted, you know, by one armed monks kind of thing, even though that's a part of our value. It's, it's not the, it's not the main value, although the roast has to be perfect. In fact, it's technically precise. We use quantification techniques there um, that I like to think are pretty advanced. Uh, But the Mm -hmm. way we're brewing the coffee is also computer controlled down to very, very small variables to the point we can show you all of that. Like it is about doing it right every single time and doing it with art, but art plus science. And when you walk in here, mm-hmm. everything in the coffee shop is about you. It's about your performance. It's about how you feel. It's not about worshiping the altar of the bean, even though I'm a big fan of doing that. This is about, <laughs> all right, what's in this coffee for me? And more <laughs> importantly, what's not in this coffee for me? And all I need is one cup of Bulletproof coffee 
all I need to do is give it to someone who's never had it before. And the odds are they're going to come back the next day because they feel different. And that is why Bulletproof yep. Coffee yesterday was on Hawaii Five O. They mentioned it in the beginning, how the guy's putting grass-fed butter in his coffee and all this stuff. People feel the difference. <laughs> it's all over Hollywood. I've done it on the set of a mm-hmm. bunch of different shows. It works. Before finishing our conversation, Dave wanted to share his current favorite ways of preparing Bulletproof Coffee. I have two favorite ways, and it's hard to say which is best. Uh, I have a uh, La Marzocco GS3, uh, which is a pretty nice espresso machine for home use. And pulling a shot on that. I want one of those. Oh, it's it's like having a Ferrari. Uh, <laughs> uh, my car is, I think, <laughs> six years old, but not my espresso machine. And, and so this makes like so much crema and it's it's so complex and bold. And I'll take that and I'll add one more shot of hot water and I'll add the grass-fed butter and the brain octane oil and I'll blend it. And I do that about half the time, especially because my kids, my five and seven-year-old, are fully trained on how to use the espresso machine without getting burned. And they love to pull the shots for me. So how could I not? The rest of the time, what I do is I use a a pour-over with a temperature-controlled kettle that puts the water at about 198 degrees. And I do that with a pour-over using a stamped metal filter, or actually a laser-cut metal filter. Uh, rather than a uh, a paper filter, because the coffee oils are are an important part of what makes coffee as powerful as an adaptogenic herb as it can be. If you're using paper, you're missing out on some of what coffee can do for you. So Definitely. that's that's it. I do one of those things. I always blend it in a the, the most powerful blender I can find. My favorite right now is a a Waring commercial blender called. Uh, called the Extreme, which is three and a half horsepower, wow. and it completely stomps on the Vitamix or the Blendtec. And I have both of those on the counter as well because I, I, I'm making a coffee shop. I've tested all of these things. Three and a half horsepower. <laughs> More blending, the better. So you just you go big or go home when it comes to blending it because you want that really creamy head. And I, sometimes if I'm in a pinch, I'll do it with a hand blender, but it doesn't taste the same. Like you want to really just beat the crap out of it and it tastes better. That's- I'll tell you something I've, I've actually found extremely effective is the little milk frothers from Ikea because, yeah. A, they actually work really well for me, and B, they cost $2.50. <laughs> You're on to something there. When I travel, I use one of those too. Uh, it sounds <laughs> like you've definitely been making your Bulletproof coffee as well. Uh-huh. I absolutely have. It's, it's great. Awesome. Uh, but thank you very much for uh, chatting today, Dave. You got it. Thanks, uh, Joseph. Where can, yeah, where can people find you? Come on over to Bulletproof.com and you can check out uh, the Bulletproof coffee beans and things like that. And if this interview is really interesting, check out the Bulletproof Diet book. You can go to BulletproofDietBook.com or go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever you like to buy books. It just hit the New York Times bestseller list. It's not a sales manual for coffee by a long shot, but it tells you about about six different mechanisms for why bulletproof coffee, the full recipe with the coffee oils, with the butter instead of milk. It tells you why for each one of those things and gives you the science about how coffee hacks your gut bacteria to have to help you stay lean and things like that. Things that you just didn't know about coffee. It's all in there and it's it's a good read. So bulletproofdietbook.com. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our conversation with Dave Asprey. If you're interested to learn more about Bulletproof Coffee, check out www.bulletproofexec.com.